They are guides, all guides, and in unexpected places. You'll meet their friendly faces, and a ready hand besides. There's not much danger of finding you're a stranger for a commissioner or ranger. They are guides, all guides. Hi, and welcome to Guides Own, the unofficial guiding podcast where we talk about everything guiding. I'm Taryn. And I'm Marissa. In this episode, we are talking about empathy and inclusion and how they can be a lens through which young people can begin to address current events, and in particular with the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. We'll also talk about a very special uh, agent and former Girl Scout, Linda Berry. Through her tenacity and perspective, she has blazed trails and become an inspiration for many female african-american fbi agents and lastly we'll round out this episode with a round of era congo a girl guide song with an african origin yeah um so we'll start with empathy and inclusion so we've been talking for a week week and a half now about (laughs) how we're going to approach everything going on and we were I feel comfortable saying we were kind of at a loss <laughs> on how to approach it in a sensitive and meaningful way. Um, yeah, absolutely. And um, we put something out on social media just to help people out to help with resources and let people know what our stance was. And of course, you know, um, definitely going to try to be, try to show like black voices and, their stories and we're definitely you know going to work on being anti-racist and showing that you know I think that's something that everyone clearly has to has to do a better job of but um you know step by step we're trying to figure out ways to help people and yeah we had a lot of discussion about um (laughs) like what what we should talk about Mm -hmm. um and we really wanted to get like not an expert opinion but an opinion of somebody who has felt like not uh, yeah, I guess racially um, targeted or um, oppressed um, have has experienced something like what is going on in the world right now, and maybe not to the same degree, yeah. but enough so that we could have that information and that that perspective, right? We need the perspective mm-hmm. and we need to raise that sort of voice. So yeah, we've had lots of discussions, definitely. Um, and I know I've been having discussions. At work, as coworkers and I have popped in and out of our office, um, especially since our office is closed, we aren't really seeing each other a whole lot. Um, but I was commenting to a coworker who had stopped in the office at the same time I did, um, and he was saying his teacher or his kid's teacher had um, approached the subject with. Um, one of his sons as starting with a conversation on empathy and how um, starting with empathy and trying to understand how the other people feel is a great way to kind of start going down this very wrought, confusing, difficult path. Um, And that kind of is what inspired us to talk about empathy and inclusion today kind of you know trying to find a good starting point to make sure that you know we learn and can be as thoughtful and considerate as we can be mm-hmm. um so i was doing my research the other night and you know finished it all and then i was thinking you know what 
I have a West Wing reference that fits perfectly into this. Um, <laughs> so West Wing has been a huge part of my guiding journey somehow. Um, completely off topic. <laughs> um, so I did Pathfinders on Wednesday nights, which happened to be the same time West Wing aired. So my parents had to take turns picking me up so they could stay home and watch West Wing. <laughs> for years um but uh at the end or at the christmas episode of the second season uh one of the main cast is um struggling with ptsd from an event that happened the season before and one of the other main characters goes up to him at the end of the episode and says this guy's walking down the street when he falls in a hole. The walls are so steep he can't get out. A doctor passes by and the guy shouts up, Hey you, can you help me out? The doctor writes a prescription, throws it down the hole, and moves on. A priest comes along and the guy shouts out, Father, I'm down this hole, can you help me out? The priest writes out a prayer, throws it down, and moves on. Then a friend walks by. Hey Joe, it's me, can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. Our guy says, Are you stupid? Now we're both down here. The rent is, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. Um, which I just thought is a perfect way to kind of start out this conversation. Um, you know, not everyone knows the answer. Not everyone really knows how to help. But, you know, there's one person who's going to get down, get dirty, and kind of not necessarily take you by the hand, but help find, you know, a way out and help make everyone better. Um, yeah. yeah, I really liked it. I watched the. Of course, I had to watch all the videos because I just wanted to make sure I knew what was happening. But mm-hmm. um, that was really nice. And it's funny, too, because my parents also watch The West Wing and are big fans. So it's funny how that happens. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I felt that story was a really good starting point, like you said. Um, and we also have a couple definitions about what empathy is. Um, the one I found was really short and sweet. It's just the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Um, and then Taryn, you have a much more descriptive one, which might help. Um, and it's the action of understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experiences of another, of either the past or present, without having the feelings, thoughts, and experience fully communicated in an objectively explicit manner. So it, that that's very wordy, but like if you read through it, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I love the videos you gave, too, as... Um, as uh, descriptions too throughout. So yeah, I was trying um, the first to find, one was the yeah, I was trying reimagine to, empathy. Mm-hmm. I was trying to find um like articles or something, and just I don't know if I was tired and couldn't focus or was just so overwhelmed. But I found um especially I think I'm linked mostly TED Talks. Um, I find they were just so accessible and a great way to start grasping everything um and made it come through in a really clear um image um i also found a really cute sesame street video which i don't think i ended up linking but i didn't see it but yeah uh yeah so the first one as you were saying was reimagining uh empathy um which was uh put on by paul parkin who's a teacher, speaker, and researcher that focuses on uh, relationships and communication. And he says, empathy is standing in someone else's shoes, 
seeing the world through their eyes and feeling what they're feeling. Um, but Paul says that that's not possible. And when we think we can do that, we start making assumptions about what other people have experienced, um, which kind of goes into his um, idea that uh, people have empathy languages, um, a lot like love languages. And mm-hmm. um, the whole um, needing to uh, be like needing someone to say, I hear you, I understand you, um, I'm like, I'm here, I can help you, versus I don't know what that's like. like explain it to me, help me understand. Um, I think we definitely, right now as a society, have to be in that second one. Where it's, you know, I don't know what Mm -hmm. you feel. Like, tell me, teach me. Yeah, and I like the way he um, explained what, like, so he gave that definition of what we all understand empathy to be, which is, you know, putting yourself in someone else's shoes and experience, like, seeing the world through their eyes. But he's saying, like, that's not necessarily the way we should be looking at empathy because you can never really put someone... Mm -hmm. Like, for example, we can't, as white people, cannot put ourselves in the shoes of black people because we just don't know what that's like and it's just not possible. I mean, maybe if the world were to be flipped upside down like and like they were to go back on us and do the same things we had done to them through history, um, maybe then we would be able to experience it. But I, I just don't think, right, it's not really a possibility. Um, yeah. So the other way to look at empathy and the other way to get empathy is um, he talks about how Empathy is the righteous struggle to try to understand what it's like to be in their shoes. So not to actually put yourself into it, but try to understand Mm -hmm. it rather than, you know, trying to see things from their perspective. So that um, is a process that happens through communication. So empathy isn't about making assumptions. It's about forging communication that is inquisitive, nonjudgmental and validating and compassionate. Um, And when we start to communicate in that way, the primary thing that it does is that it changes us. We see people in our lives differently. We rewrite the narratives that we tell ourselves about others in the kindest way possible. So you're like no longer making these uh, assumptions just by saying, putting yourself in their shoes. Um, I think you just need to listen to their experiences. And that's how that empathy, that new form of empathy sort of builds, which I, I just thought that was so cool the way he explained that. And I was like, yes, that's, you know. That's definitely sort of what we're having to do right now. We're having to listen and learn and ask questions and, you know, just be the ones who are listening and then taking action from that. Yeah, another video I watched um, was all about asking questions to start the conversation to get to a point um, where you both feel better about the problem. So the example this speaker gave was she was a teacher and snapped at one of her students or told off one of her students for not completing their homework. Um, And then the student being a teenager was sassy and annoyed and, you know, didn't teach them to treat the teacher with the most respect, but, you know, it's a teenager. Um, so the next day the teacher approached the student and was like, I'm sorry, I, you know, it wasn't the best way I could have approached the problem. Like, let's talk about it. Like, this is, you know, what I was feeling before. This is what made me, you know, start the interaction this way. Um, and like they went through it, uh, and, you know, talked about it and 
came to, out the other end with a greater respect for each other. Um, and the student ended up doing their homework. So. <laughs> um, yeah. But having that it's, conversation yeah. and explaining both sides so everyone can understand the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that sort of reminds me of that idea or that topic where you think about like someone, you don't know what's going on in someone's life, right? Mm-hmm. Unless they tell you. So if it's like a stranger or someone you just come into contact with once once in a day, like maybe it's a cashier at a store um, and they're, you know, maybe they like have an attitude towards you. But I mean, maybe they're going through a lot in their life and that's sort of a similar type of thing until they tell you, until you communicate between each other. You, you don't know and then you can't really form that empathy yet. Like it's just yeah. not there. You're just assuming they're being, like you said, like the sassy teenager or like the teacher who like snapped, right? You you have no idea until they say something. And it, it's mm-hmm. good for that other party too when it's a, a relationship that is more, um, you see each other more often. So like student and teacher that she, he or she, the teacher was able to recognize what happened and apologize and then say like, let's work on, you know, what happened. Let's talk yeah. about it. Definitely. And, you know, asking those questions and building that relationship is a lot about inclusion as well. Um, so mm-hmm. one uh, really sweet video that I watched was completely silent and we'll link to it um, on social media and, and the blog um, is about how inclusion starts with I. Um, and all it takes is one person, one person to care, one commitment to act. Um, you, you, me, we, it starts with us speaking up, making note when meeting rooms or committees are lacking in diversity. Um, and the video was about all sorts of, or all kinds of diversity. So race, gender, um, sexual orientation, um, ability versus disability, um, parenting, like all sorts of inclusion and how, um, everyone needs, you know, to feel like they have that voice to talk up or speak up and be able to do um, what they need to to, you know, keep that work-life balance and make sure everyone's happy and heard and, you know, have a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, which goes into the next video, which was uh, presented by Sunny Matthews, a diversity trainer, um, who I love her analogy at the start of this um uh first she uh talks about how inclusion means everyone's voice is heard shared and understood diversity means that you know you're there to be politically correct and how inclusion and diversity is like a fruit platter versus a fruit salad so a fruit platter you know everyone's there represented but you know they're all separate it's all you know pretty and laid out versus a fruit salad where everything's just tossed together um and you know all the flavors are mingling and like supporting each other and it just makes a big like a really good you know snack or something um but i love the imagery of it just you know having everyone um, not combined, but mixed up. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, and how, um, you know, true inclusion means that everyone's voice is heard. Like, you're sitting there, you're 
listening to each other and you want, you know, the other person to be able to share their perspectives. Um, yeah. She uh, shared a really great um, story of how she went to a Quaker college, Guilford College, um, <laughs> that was super white, her words, not ours. Um, and uh, in her first year, she felt very excluded. It felt mm. like there wasn't really any real um, way to include her in class conversations. Um, it was very much, she felt like she was there to be, you know, part of their diversity numbers. Um, and then mm-hmm. over, you know, the summer between her first and second year, the college decided they wanted to change. Um, and I think is a great way of saying it, is that the college proclaimed, like said out loud, we are racist. We are a racist institution, but we want towards being anti-racist. We want to learn. We want to get better. And the school did so much. They held, you know, anti-racism courses. They made every department have um, multicultural um, courses that focused on race, class, gender. Um, they got comfortable being uncomfortable and having hard conversations um, and really worked to um, grow as a school and as a community. Um, and yeah, then, I really liked yeah. her story and um, the fact that I think that the thing to pull out of that is that the fact that they put in a lot of money towards it mm-hmm. and they didn't just say something and like nothing happened. They they said something and they put money into it and they put a real effort into it and they were yeah. serious about it. Um, you hear so often about schools and universities um, all over and there's one that I know of recently where, you know, they put out a statement like everyone else does about Black Lives Matter and being anti-racist and all this, but like you can only say so much. You have to actually do things. You have to actually make real action. And students bombarded their social media and, and they've been just like, you know, saying like, what are you doing though? Like, what are you actually doing? Mm-hmm. You can't just say these things. You have to, sh- you have to show it through like, whether that means including a more diverse workplace um, in terms of the professors, your TAs, the administration, everything, like all levels and actually having them included in things and like making real effort and putting money into things, right? Like, like this college has done yeah. that Penny was at. Um, so yeah, there's, I, you can, you see that a lot right now is that people are saying things, but there's not necessarily always action behind it. Mm-hmm. So this is a good example of how it should be done. Yeah, and, like, she was saying she was the center of college, like, the college. She knew everything that was going on. Um, If anyone had a question, like, she knew exactly, like, if she didn't know the answer, she knew exactly where to send them so they could get the answer. Um, And then uh, during one of her last years, she um, was, felt like she was missing a part of the curriculum and went to one of her philosophy professors and they created a course on the philosophy of black thought. Um, and they talked, or in this um, course that they created, they talked about Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Maya Angelou, W.E.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington. Like, they found 
everybody that they could and put it into a course. Um, she said it was an independent study, but I really hope that they took um, at least the foundations of this course and made it um, available to everybody. It seems like it would be a really interesting course to take. Yeah, I was, um, I think like over the past few weeks, like thinking things, reading things, one of the things I sort of took for granted and definitely made me feel privileged was the fact that, yeah, in high, in all schools and in history um, classes in particular, you learn a lot about like the, the white people, right? Mm -hmm. The white men. And I mean, occasionally you get some of the women who helped or some of the indigenous Canadians or some of the African Americans or wherever you are, the black people in Canada who helped out, like, um, they're few and far between though. And there's just not enough of it. And I, I never like even thought about that as a kid, right? Like you yeah. just don't think you just assume a lot of the time you assume what you're, what is being taught to you is, you know, what, what the truth is. And I think they just have left out so much, um, that we don't realize and and I've just come like I've just been learning like how much has been left out of our history books and and education and it yeah like it sort of frustrates me a little bit and uh like so much work to be done but yeah yeah glad to glad to hear that she was able to make a difference and I think that's what we need right or people like that to now start holding people accountable for mm -hmm. for their what their statements are definitely I think you know, the fact that I was, inter like, very interested in history as a kid. I went to a camp um, outside of Cornwall. It was a time traveler's camp. I got dressed up as a kid from the 1860s Ooh. for a week <laughs> and lived the life as a kid in the 1860s. Um, it was so much fun. I loved it. I went back for as long as I could until I got too old. But one of the things they did every year with every group of kids, um, the first, you know, two or three days is you spend learning about the Loyalist movement in Canada. Um, and from a very young age, I think I started going to this camp when I was like eight, nine, um, we were taught about slavery in Canada and how, you know, Canada had slavery and what it meant. Um, and then how it was abolished, but didn't really talk about the continued struggles of Black Canadians at that time. Um, and we were, you know, taught about how Black Americans came to Canada to escape slavery and Black loyalists and all this stuff. Like, I, you know, was very aware of it when I was a kid, but didn't really understand, you know, the broader implications. And... You know, I'm sure a lot of that was, I was, you know, seven, eight, nine, maybe ten. Like, I don't think I understood what class was at that point, or not as nuanced as, you know, anyone today would, or anyone our age would today. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, and, you know, I felt like I never really went beyond that in school. Like, it was very whitewashed. Like, I, I remember going back to school and telling classmates that, you know, there was slavery in Canada. And they're like, no, that's not true. Like, we never learned that. Like, that's not true. Like, no, no, it, it was. Um, but yep. no one touching on it beyond that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's nice to hear that you had that 
um, sort of, again, it was clearly outside of school, but you learned a little bit more than what most of the, like, standard kids in, at least in Ontario, were learning, right? Yeah. So, um, good to hear that there are some organizations or groups out there that are trying to teach kids, you know, the real truth about, about that kind of stuff, because it's important, and... It is. Yeah, there's just not enough, there's just not enough of those places out there not enough of those camps not enough yeah um knowledge being spread um and one downfall of that camp is it was about pioneers in upper canada in the 1860s we did not talk about indigenous (laughs) people at all at least not that i can remember now um so it's they weren't perfect but um no one is and I believe that knowing the people who were in charge of the camp then, um, I can't say for what's happening now, but I'd like to believe that, you know, they grew and learned, especially because it's a history camp. Um, I would, I know I would be hurt if they didn't um, continue to try and grow and learn and be better. Mm-hmm. It would be so enriching if, yeah, they were, if they had... I don't know, like, if they've worked on the Indigenous side of things, because that's a huge whole history, too, that's been buried and no one likes to talk about, but except for the Indigenous people and people who support them. And, like, I have a close friend who is Anuk, and, you know, she is so passionate about it, and I've learned a little bit from her already. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's just crazy to hear the things that that were brushed, like, under the rug. And, yeah, yeah, there's multiple things in our histories. And, and, yeah, no country, I don't think any country is safe from that kind of thing. Like, you have to, you just have to be truthful about it and bring it out because otherwise it builds and builds and builds, and then you get something like this happening, which, I mean, is a good thing in itself. Like, finally change is happening, but, you know, it's it's probably better done. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, it reminds me of a quote um, that I really like that I've been hearing over and over again, and it's um, by Martin Luther King. Um, and it's, a riot is the language of the unheard. Um, mm-hmm. I just love it because it's so true, right? It's it's all these people who aren't being heard. They're, they're trying to raise their voices, but they're not being heard because they're not white um, and they've been oppressed. Their voices have been shut down. They've been yeah. oppressed for so long. So it's our job then, using empathy and the the inclusion um, to help them raise their voices up and to help, you know, use our voices, use our privileges to spread it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just, I love that quote and I thought I would throw it in there because I just yeah. thought, you know, it's, it's what's happening, right? It's become a riot because they've been hurt, unheard for so long. Yeah, think about, you know, that little kid in, you know, class who always acted out. Um because I remember being told as a kid, like, you know, they're acting out because they don't know how to communicate their problems. Um, and mm. some of that is, you know, they have a ton of problems and they need help. Some of it's like no one's listening to anything they have to say. Um, and just a little kindness can go a long way. Um, and that's all that... Um, the Black Lives Matter movement's looking for is kindness and empathy and people to stand with them and listen and learn and be better. Absolutely. And yeah, there's so many big people out there right now who are, you know, speaking up and saying things and leading the the movement. Um, And, you know, it's people like our 
segment for She Was a Girl Guide, you know, Linda Berry. Um, she was big and, you know, she pushed yeah. to get what she wanted. Nancy Reagan, Helen Hayes, Jan Davis, John Sauvet, Carrie Fisher, William's sister, Shirley Temple Black, Tammy Duckworth, Kathy Frost, Candace Bergen, Lucille Ball, Debbie Reynolds, Princess Margaret, Hillary Clinton. Did you know she was a girl guide? Busting down the door a hundred years or more. Did you know she was a girl guide? Here to let you know she was a guide you know. Did you know she was a girl guide? Um, so a little background on, uh, the FBI and African American agents, um, in November of 2019, so only a few months ago, uh, I guess not anymore, it's already June, feels like 2020 (laughs) has been a blur, um, but November of 2019, the FBI marked 100 years since their first African-American special agent. Um, and that agent was named James Wormley Jones, um, who joined the Bureau of Investigation, um, later to be renamed the FBI, on December 2nd, 1919, leading the way for future African-Americans to become special agents. Yeah, and he was um, basically, I think from, I watched a panel um, to get more information on Linda Berry, because first of all, as I was telling Taryn, there was very little information written out about Linda Berry, and I don't know if that's because she's just a more private person, or she was an FBI agent, so there's not a lot of information on them, but I don't know. Anyway, so um, from what was being explained about him on this panel was that he was originally, I think think in law enforcement which I mean in that time like that's a big deal um but then he was quickly um asked to join the Bureau of Investigation and he was quickly put into service working um very dangerous undercover cases um and along with the era's more common types of federal crimes so those were auto theft and interstate prostitution um, they seem to focus heavily on auto theft. I think he had a big um, role in playing undercover with that. Um, and he ended up serving for four years, um, so not super long. Um, and the sad thing was is that it wasn't until 1962 that the FBI accepted two African-American special agents at their academy. So it was a long time. That's a good 40 years um, in between that the is first one and then another one. A very long time. Especially with, like, how racially diverse America was at that time. Um, But that was also, you know, in the heart of, like, Jim Crow and all of that. So I guess it unfortunately makes sense. Um, But I'm glad to see that, you know, they eventually allowed and have allowed more African-Americans to join the Academy. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at this um, celebration that they're having, 100 years, um, they, um, there was also an attached article reflecting on the, on the anniversary. um, And it was all about African-American agents, past and present. um, So retired and current, um, talking about, you know, um, what they've been through, and, you know, how much has changed. Um, and um, 
several of them while they were being interviewed remark um, about how they were one of the only African-Americans in their training class at Quantico. Um, So, you know, it was clearly still very, very much and probably, I mean, it's definitely changed, but not to the degree it should be, but you know, they Mm -hmm. were on their own. It was just them. And then like a room full of white men, basically. And again, like more men than females. Um, But a lot of them recall being told by family members or even just strangers that they were just not cut out for it and they were not going to make it through. Um, But of course that only sort of steeled their resolve and that made them push harder and further and faster. And Linda was definitely that kind of woman. I would have to assume if you are good enough to make it into Quantico training that you're stubborn enough to kind of stick it to family and strangers who say you can't do something. I would, knowing me, yeah. that's the kind of person I am. <laughs> um, but, you know, not everyone can get into Quantico, so I'm assuming these are pretty tough people getting there. Mm-hmm. And it's actually funny, when I was listening to this video, which we can, again, we'll post all the links to stuff like that, um, but each of the people they were interviewing, each of the African-American either retired or still working in the FBI, um, they were all talking about how they didn't come to apply to the FBI in what would be seen as the classic way or the what you would think most agents do. A lot of them were just you know, they didn't realize the FBI was a way to work. Like they were either in different fields or just had never thought about it. And somebody had presented them with the opportunity and they took the opportunity and ran with it and just, Mm -hmm. you know, did it. Um, And Linda was, of course, one of those people. Um, But we'll start off talking about her early life because it gives a very good foundation of what's to come. Um, So in her life, um, she says that she was always surrounded by women. Um, she had two sisters, a mother and a grandmother. Um, unfortunately, her father died when she was only three years old. Aww. So she was raised by her mother and her grandmother, um, both of who refused to take on welfare. So, of course, they lived quite simply. They had gardens. Um, they were, so they were growing their own food. They raised chickens. Um, and she made a nice little neat little analogy about the chickens and how she has, you know, been able to get over these speed bumps um, in her life, um, specifically, too, about getting through the FBI and making a name for herself. Um, so she talked about how the chickens, they would scratch. Um, and she said, so I learned that you have to scratch. And then she made it an analogy to, you know, getting through the FBI and getting over people saying these things about you, about how you'll never make it. And she said, it doesn't matter what anybody around you does, as long as they're not in your way, you scratch. No, nobody is going to stop me from doing what I need to do. You have to go for it. So she's talking about, you know, when chicken scratch, you got to scratch back. So yeah. when people make these assumptions, say that like you're never going to make it, you have to, you have to prove it to them. You have to scratch back and and prove it and say like I am going to. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing about Linda is that she came from a very small southern town with a population of only about ten thousand. Um, so, so another fuel to her fires was that. Yeah, she wanted to get out of that small town because she needed, you know, something different. She just couldn't, she couldn't, uh, she couldn't live there. She couldn't work there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so she got out of her little tiny small town um, and attended Texas Women's University, where she graduated in 1974. 
Um, she started by working in biology and working in a molecular biology lab as a scientist, uh, but got bored of the job doing the same thing over and over and over again, you know, the same experiments. Um, and she thought she can't do this for a lifetime. She needed to change. Um, and in order to really move up and do anything in science, you need a master's and a PhD. Um, and, you know, that's hard to get your master's. It's hard to get your PhD. Um, just, you know, academically plus it's not cheap to do either of those. Um, <laughs> so she uh, decided that, you know, that wasn't really in the cards for her. Um, and she wasn't going to be a teacher or a scientist, but she ended up deciding to go back and get a master's in law enforcement. Um, she wanted to be in a field where there weren't a lot of women. Um, so she definitely, you know, knew she was getting herself into a tough career choice. Um, and she, you know, started at a very practical, you know, square one. She went to the library, um, and she looked up different fields, read about law enforcement, um, and thought that's what she wanted to do. Um, and then, uh, quit her job, um, and went to Washington State University to get her master's in criminology, um, even though she had... Uh, no experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so she talks about then how she had to take a job in Idaho Falls, Idaho, um, at a nuclear power plant. Um, she didn't say specifically what she was doing, so I was a little confused about why she was there, but I'm assuming she needed some sort of job experience in criminology, so she might have been she security had found one. Yeah, I'm thinking it was something like that. Um, that's sort of what I had got out of what she said. Um, but she basically told the story about how her boss was actually an ex-agent of the FBI and had basically, as soon as he figured out where, why she was in school and what she was doing, what she wanted, um, had started to encourage her. And she, she said, um, pushed her, I think, or she used a different word that was like, he basically like in a nice way, but aggressively would always ask her, like, you should apply to the FBI. Like I have this, um, my friend is still working and like my squad, um, they were all male, but they never had a female. So like, you know, you, did you apply yet every day? He would like, did you, did you apply for the application? Like, um, and you know, at first she wasn't sure. She's like, nah, like, I don't think that's for me. But then after a year, it took her a year of his constant bombardment. Um, she did give in and she said, you know, get them to send me the application, you know, I'll take a look. Yeah. Um, and she got the application, and she said it's 15 pages oh long. Oh, my God. That's so and long. She, it is. So she said she threw it in a drawer, um, thinking, like, it was too long and that she would never, like, she would never hear from the FBI because that she just would never fill up the application. And, mm -hmm. you know, she that was her view. She, she would never get into the FBI. But then one day after that, her boss came into the office and told her, you are going to take this day to fill out the application. <laughs> um, so she filled it out. Like, he was very adamant and very, like, supportive and had presented her with this opportunity. So, you know, after a lot of pushing, she finally yeah. took it. So, it's big, nice big to, deal. Nice to see that uh, there was someone in her life who saw her potential and pushed her to um, fulfill that. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Yeah, and so, it's funny because that's what a lot of the panelists were talking about is about how they 
there was this one person in their life that pushed them to apply or, or help them out, help them to get to where they were to be successful. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and obviously since we're talking to her as the first, or talking about her as, you know, a FBI agent, she got in. Um, she was the second African-American woman to join the FBI ever. Uh, so, you know, while she was, you know, pushed to be there, she definitely, they definitely needed her. Mm-hmm. Um, during training, Linda said she was warned by the cleaning woman at the training academy that she would not make the cut. I was angry, Barry said. I was like, how dare you tell me I can't make it? There are people that do make it. Why not me? Um, so definitely took, you know, like what we were talking about earlier, you know, people being around saying, you know, you can't. Why Why try? You aren't going to succeed, so don't bother. Um, and then, yeah, she took that anger. She took that outrage um, and fed it into her job um she kind of took it as fuel to keep going with a just watch me kind of attitude Mm-hmm. yeah and it was lasted her 28 years um she was with the fbi serving um and they had said that during most of that time she was the only african-american agent there so still like even though they had her it was very much you know on her own sort of type thing mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was, it was tough, but, you know, she, she kept going and she used that, right, that fuel to keep going and going. Um, what was nice is at the end of the panel, they were asking everyone, um, about, you know, diversity and the panelists said, like, what do you all think, um, or why do you all think that diversity of all kinds is important for the FBI? Um, and Linda had a really nice response and she said, Um, Everything that is represented in society should be a cross-section in your own organization. How else can you function? You can't, um, especially in law enforcement. That's, you know, what she said. And I thought, that's so true, right? Like, how are you going to be successful? How is your organization going to be successful if you do not have an inclusive, if you do not have the diversity and the inclusion um, that represents what society is happening. And I think the reason for law enforcement, and I think Linda spoke to this a little bit, is that, you know, it's important that um, for FBI and law enforcement that there are people that look like the people in the community that they feel like represents who they are. Um, and she she did admit, like, it makes it easier to talk for, it makes people feel more comfortable to talk to you, to talk to an FBI, FBI agent or talk to a police officer um, or any member of authority Um it's, you know, it's an instant connection. People are more likely to, like, if a black, if there's a black officer, a black agent, a black member of the community is going to feel more safe talking to someone like that just mm-hmm. because of what's been happening, right? It just makes sense. Yeah. They understand their history. They understand what they're going through. They understand the perspective. Um, so that's sort of like her take on it. Um, and, you know, it just, it just made sense to her. Um, yeah, it must be so comforting yeah. to be a member of you know, whatever minority you're a part of and looking around to, you know, either your government or the police force in your community, anywhere to see yourself represented. Um, and that's what, mm-hmm. you know, I know I've been hearing it around for years and years and years is that, you know, people didn't think they could do it because they didn't see themselves. 
They didn't see themselves on TV doing whatever. They didn't see themselves mm-hmm. as astronauts. Like, that representation wasn't there. And so, like, we've talked about it before. Little girls, you know, hadn't seen something before. How were they supposed to know that they could do that job? Um, we talked about it a few weeks ago with uh, Susie Wolf. Um, and, you know, the lack of diversity in racing. Um, if mm-hmm. you don't see yourself, like, why would you even try? Or if you don't see yourself, how do you know that it's possible? Um, yeah, definitely. Very good, uh, good way to sort of relate to what we've already talked about. And yeah, I think Linda um, was definitely someone that then people started to look up to her and saw her as an inspiration. Um, there was in one of the articles, um, they were talking to a current agent, um, Special Agent Sinegar or Sanger. Sorry for the mispronunciation. Um, but basically, she said um, it was pioneering agents like Barry and James Wormley Jones who paved the way for herself. Um, she said, if there wasn't that one agent who had the courage to step out and say, I'm going to do this thing and I don't see anyone else doing that that looks like me, then I wouldn't be here, she said. So yeah. if it hadn't been for Barry, if it hadn't been for James Wormley Jones, she felt like she wouldn't have been there because she wouldn't have seen that it was possible. And right. It just full circle there. Right. It just, it makes sense. And um, there was sort of some background information on how the FBI has been working really hard to become more inclusive and diverse and all that Um, as of today. So as of that article in 2019, November um, African Americans made up less than 5% of the Bureau's 13,000 special agents. Um, and um, African-Americans also make up 11.3% of the FBI, FBI workforce in total. So not just special agents, but the entire workforce. Um, so, you know, there's there's definitely a huge, like, gap that they're missing. Um, yeah. And like I said, they've been working on recruiting for a more diverse workforce. Um, and they have actually seen increases. So the number of African-American New agents at the training academy has more than doubled in recent years. So from 4% five, year, five years ago to 9% in the most recent fiscal year. Um, and the other thing they talked a lot about on the panel um, was about Judge Webster, um, who's a director of the FBI in the late 1970s. Um, he was working really hard to bring the numbers of minorities up in the organization. And he was another person who put the money and the effort where his mouth was. Mm-hmm. Um, so he noticed the lack of diversity in his time and he started actually doing something about it. Um, and the numbers and percentages actually increased during his direction because he put the full weight of his office behind it. Like he put people to work about it. Um, and they had this um, funny um, little anecdote about how he carried this um, card in his pocket. Um, it was like three by five um, and it had all the numbers of the diversity um, about the special about special agents on duty. So the numbers for males and females, the numbers on whites, African Americans, Hispanics, and huh. um, he would get people in his office who were in charge of you know figuring that stuff out, and he would get them to explain to him what they were doing in terms of applicant recruitment. So he would make them you know tell him like, so what have you done about this so far? Like, what are we doing? We need to do more. Like, would always be pushing. Yeah. Um, so it was, you know, it was something that he took seriously. And, um, really? um, you know, it's not, 
it was it's not enough. They're not doing enough, I guess, yet. But you know, it was they the FBI is known for that for trying to be more diverse mm-hmm. um, and inclusive. So yeah, yeah, just sort of a nice way to end off. Yeah. So while you were talking, I was curious. You know, um, you said that. There's about 11% of the total FBI workforce is African-American or black. Um, in 2010, because the United States only does their national census every 10 years. Um, so mm-hmm. the numbers we have are 10 years old now because it's a census year in the States. Um, but in 2010, um, non-Hispanic blacks made up 12.1% of the U.S. population. Um, and, um, if you include multiracial, multiracial African-Americans, um, it bumps that number up to 14%. So while their special agents aren't necessarily reflective of the national demographics, their, um, overall staff is, which is encouraging. It's nice to see that, Mm -hmm. um, they are making an effort and they are at least, you know, keeping pace with national demographics. Um, however, the, uh, next article I clicked in right after that one, um, asked for Americans to guess what percentage of the population of the U.S. is black, and the majority of Americans, about 56%, estimate the percentage of black people in the United States stand at 30% or higher. So, hmm. um, they, while the FBI, you know, has clearly made that effort, um, Americans in general definitely see more blacks, um, around the country than they actually are. That's interesting. Huh. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that goes back to, like, the mindset that they have that, I mean, I don't know how much is truthful, but... You know, and I've watched so many different things and read so many different things. Um, but I think they have this mentality that, you know, they're scared that they're going to take their jobs. I've heard a lot of, like, white supremacists, racists talk about that. Like, they're scared that black people are going to take their jobs. And I think that may be part of their that um, guess that they made on how many people they think in the U.S. made up their population. Um, I wonder if that's connected. It just sort of yeah. sounds like such a such a like clear a big difference between the actual numbers and what they're imagining in their heads mm-hmm. I think they feel threatened and um I mean they have good reason to be threatened because of what's happened throughout history I watched a video the other day and it was like this woman was explaining you know what's happening and you know why they're demanding change in the way they're doing it um but she said you know we're very lucky that all that black people are asking for is for understanding and for peace and for change. They're not, they're not rioting against you. They're not doing what you did to them. Like all those years ago, right? Like yeah. they're not <laughs> flipping the coin on you. So um, yeah, I think, I think there's some fear in, in those people's mindsets that and that's what stops them from understanding, but mm-hmm. it's a whole other topic too for a it totally different really show. It really is. Um, yeah. Uh, I think that, you know, we need to start and we need to learn about um, the great men and women who have started making 
um, change for us in the world so we can see and we are in a space where we can learn. Um, and we'll make sure that we, you know, give, you know, a list of resources. Because um, there's so many out there. Um, I saw today that the um, New York, all the New York Times bestseller lists, so fiction, nonfiction, all of that, um, have been taken over by uh, African-American voices. Um, so it's nice to see people are, you know, putting in the work and hopefully it continues and hopefully, you know, our kids won't be having these conversations because this needs to stop. Um, yeah. So on a happier note, let's talk <laughs> about our campfire song. Here Our campfire song, Ira Congo, um, has absolutely no history. Um, the <laughs> only bit of history I could find is that it comes from somewhere in Africa. Couldn't find <laughs> yeah. a country, couldn't find a region, couldn't find anything. Um, but, and this could be completely false. But I remember hearing at some point somewhere um, is that it's a lullaby, which makes sense oh. if you listen to it. It's, you know, has that very peaceful, calming um, tune to it. Um, it can be sung in a round. Um, and yeah, um, it was included in the... Sing Ontario Sing Challenge, which I don't think we've talked about before. Um, so No, I bet that would be an entirely different episode. <laughs> yeah, so a quick, quick, quick overview of Sing Ontario Sing is every year at the Ontario um, Board or Ontario Provincial Committee puts out a challenge where they um, give you a whole list of campfire songs and encourages you to sing and learn about them and every year has a theme so a couple years ago their theme was around the world um and Iro congo was one of the th one of the songs they had listed yeah and it's nice because i think that year they had divided up into regions so you had songs for different regions and yeah it's easier to do as as girl guides because we have WAGS, the World Association, mm -hmm. so we can actually get real songs that are real, really being sung right from around the world. Yeah. Um, and we get the lyrics and the and the music. So um, I haven't done a Sing Ontario Sing Challenge in so long. And I think that's one of the things moving forward. If um, I think it, it'd be easier if we met in person next year, <laughs> but I don't know if that's going to happen. But yeah. I would like to do that for our girls. And um, I don't have the best singing voice, but like I feel like, as a group, we could probably do it. And because we've got Tina, of course, she could help us a little bit because she has a lot more, I think, of the insight and knowledge on where the songs come from. And maybe she also the songs has are supposed all to be sung. the songbooks. <laughs> so 
so yeah. many songs. So I think I think that's one thing I want to try to do next year is do um, some campfire because I love yeah. collecting badges and you get a sing Ontario sing crest and um, sometimes they're nicer than others, but um, <laughs> it's just nice to have that. And I think our girls actually expressed interest in doing a campfire. Um, so yes. I think we need to do more of that, more singing. I've always loved doing campfires and singing at girl guide events, um, especially at summer camp. So yeah, this one's definitely going to be taught. It's an easy song it's to teach, um, so easy. easy song to sing. I've and, been singing um, I actually came week. across. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I came across a um, recorded version by some girl guide group here in Canada. And um, there was a, I forgot about that. There's a second harmony that kind of goes with the melody and it sounds really cool when sung in around and like with those harmonies. So yeah, um, it would be really cool to try, but um, yeah, it's a very good song. If you haven't heard it, you should take a listen and try it out. Um, I think even Sparks could sing it. I, oh, I really think totally. it's that easy. Um, like yeah. the hardest word is Congo. Like it's a very easy song. Yeah. Um, and it's very simple and it's only five lines. I, I've taught it to yeah. Sparks. Like they, I don't have an issue with it. Um, yeah. Uh, so that brings us to the end of another week. Um, Hopefully you learned something. Hopefully uh, we can take, you know, what we talked about this week and make the world a better place. Um, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor Podcasts, uh, anywhere pretty much. Um, and wherever you find us, make sure you give us a five-star rating and review. Let us know you're listening and enjoying us. Yeah, and you can also follow us on social media, of course, at Guides Own. We're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Um, it'll help you keep up to date on the newest episodes, any podcast news that we release, any resources, um, some behind-the-scenes bits, mm-hmm. so keep an eye out. Um, I have also been working on, very slowly, um, putting up... I forgot about the fact that we have a blog post to go with each episode, <laughs> um, and that definitely has a lot more of the resources in it, um, but I'll try to also post maybe on social media the videos we talked about because they're yeah. really good resources. Um, so I'll, I'll rather than just putting those in the blog post, I will try to post them on social media. Um, it's easy on Twitter and Facebook, not so easy on Instagram because links don't work the same way. That's oh. one thing that really bugs me about Instagram. Um, you have to have like so many followers in order to do swipe ups. You need to have like, I think, 10,000 followers. That's a lot of um, it is um i mean we could probably potentially get there one day but i think for now um i'll try to find the videos and share them um and we'll see yeah, yeah. so just keep an eye out and um if you can't find them read the blog post it's on the website um it'll be up eventually i'm very it's taking forever to put the posts up because i'm doing all other sorts of things but uh, mm-hmm. i'll try to speed them up a little bit yeah And as we wish um, all of our listeners, good guiding. Good guiding. Day is done, gone the sun, from the lake, from the hills, from the sky. All is well, safely rest, peace is nigh.